to the Skeptic Wire. When you finally hear this, it will no longer be Darwin Day. It'll be the end of Darwin Week. But for us right now, we are in the, the joyous season, which is... <laughs> We're in the throes of Darwin Day. <laughs> Soon we'll be in the throes of Valentine's Day. Oh, fuck that. <laughs> Pretty yeah. much. I may show up to your uh, card thing, by the way. <laughs> Cards against I Valentine's Day. I have something. Yeah. Donna Post. I have something. I have a tradition called having a date. With Do my you know, two... Fuck you. No, did you, <laughs> no, read, did the you whole... read the whole post? No, just that. Her date is with Ben and Jerry. Oh, really? Yes. yes. Oh, sorry. Ben and Jerry, I have a standing date with them every fucking Valentine's Day, okay? Oh. Standing date. And, and I they the see worst... the most special movie about Valentine's ever. It's called Love Stinks, and it will make you feel better about any relationship you've ever had. <laughs> okay. So, I... fuck you. <laughs> and I apologize. <laughs> This is what happens when you don't read the whole damn post, no. which which is odd for me. I usually read the whole damn post, but <laughs> I doubt you now. I was I was busy today. Donna's going to be slipping like green M and M's writer's clauses into all her posts from now on, to, just to see if you actually read it from now on. <laughs> Badminton. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, how's everybody's week been? Is pretty good. Okay. Good. I made a decision this week. Um, just it, one. Uh, yeah, just one. All, <laughs> the only a thing, big one. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Big for me. I have decided that after um, many hours of re reflection, You're I taking up drinking. No. <laughs> You're taking a marijuana. No. Get them all out of your system. <laughs> Smoking. No. <laughs> um. That's really pretty, that's all the ones we know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the other a obvious one would be. And your new name is Beverly? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have decided that I must retire the Freudian penis joke. Ah. Because I have been called out on that several times by listeners like Richard Hannes has called me out on it. And you guys have obviously called me out on it many, many times. I think it's time to retire that joke. All right. I guess he's going to have a Freudian dildo from now on. <laughs> <laughs> A Freudian French tickler. Huh. Or maybe a that Freudian complex. That doesn't roll off the tongue very easily. <laughs> Next one. Okay. Bring it, Gary. Bring it. <laughs> it's episode 149 uh, of the Skeptic Wire, uh, to which you are listening, uh, for the 12th of February 2014. And as we have alluded to, today is... Darwin Day, as we are recording. Yes, I think we mentioned that. I mentioned. I think I mentioned that earlier. It's also Lincoln's birthday. Yes, and um, Edison's birthday. I don't think is it. Yeah, Thomas Edison. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. And there are a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot of hockey, football players, football, uh, uh, soccer rather, and gymnasts, mm -hmm. uh, and basketball players. Well, I, I noticed a lot when I'm researching birthdays, just looking through, like, Wikipedia's list of who was famous That's born what I was looking at, yeah. this, uh, this day. Every single week when I'm looking up these birthdays, the last 20 years is 90% sports people, especially football players slash footballers. I assume that's soccer. Right. Or, and, and then, like, 5% porn actors and actresses. And then a few other people sprinkled in here or there. Right. So, yes, a lot of... A lot of mentions of sports people, which I don't think are as important as some of the people we talk about. No, on the show, but, but but I noticed that all of those sports people were about 1980 and yeah, late later. Where older than that, you get the really big name kind of Babe yeah, Ruth. I think I, saw, I remember there was an engineer, stuff. there was a physicist, an astronomer, and a pope. Sure, actually, there Pope Gregory. <laughs> if I recall correctly. Oh damn it! My secret's out. <laughs> All right, well, if we hang him, he'll be a pope on a rope. 
Okay. <laughs> wow, this turned I've... violent all of a sudden. This is dead anyway. Usually Donna's the one who threatens to kill us, but okay, usually it's boning accidents. But... That's right. Anyway, so do we have a birthday today? We do have a birthday today, and it actually is not Lincoln, and it actually is not Darwin. We can talk about Darwin later in the show. Thomas Edison. Like no. <laughs> Pope Gregory. <laughs> This is what happens when Gary actually does research. He <laughs> tries to fuck up the whole show. Not Edison, but it is an inventor. Dr. Allison. No. Uh, whose birthday it is as well. A friend yeah, of the show, Dr. Friend of the show, Dr. Allison. Her birthday is today. But a, maybe a raw is... milk specialist. Yes. <laughs> raw, 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 raw milk. <laughs> The important thing is that you admit that you know it's stupid, Gary. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so, is this a scientist person? It is a science inventory person who was born February 12th, 1948, went to MIT, and some of his initial inventions that he's really famous for include uh, optical character recognition, text-to-speech synthesis, and speech reg recognition technology. Sinclair? No. 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 She's almost got it. Hold on. I will give you a singular clue. Oh. Uh... <sighs> Shit. <laughs> well, he, he worked for Bell Labs, right? Maybe. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, he, OCR. He, ha he has had some... And he, he's, well, he's the CEO of Singular now? He's... He started up a lot of companies under his own name, which I can't mention them, but he'll start a company about developing a music synthesizer or... Moog? No, not Moog, or developing this speech recognition <laughs> technology and stuff like that. And then a lot of these sub-companies that he's developed, once he builds the product that goes big, he damn sells it, it all. Damn it, I, uh, I see the name. Not, not and Klipsch. It, um, no, it starts with a K... Yeah. Well, Klipsch starts with a K. Yeah. Sorry. It's, <laughs> I know. I know. But a different K. Kurt. You're getting Kurt. there. Kurzweil. Yes. First <laughs> name you. Ray. Yeah. Who also thinks he's going to live forever, isn't it? Singular yeah. clue was the singularity. Yeah, that's right. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th I think you guys kind of did that together. I'm very proud of you guys. So we are the queens of the podcast. <laughs> yes. We are not amused. <laughs> So, yes, big on inventing um, computer science as a kid and went to MIT for, I think it was like computer science and, <clears throat> and, and all that. And developed a lot of these technologies to essentially help the disabled of, in order to have a system that could speak text to the blind for any source that they had, he had to develop a program that would interpret scanned text from any font into actual characters not every letter P looks like the same letter P in every font. Sure. That's so a way for the computer to recognize that. But also in order to make this work for the blind, they had to develop scanning technology and also um, um, synthetic speech and that sort of stuff. So all of that came, to, came together in one of his big or initial inventions. He's moved on to that to being most famous for being a big futurist. And making a lot of predictions about the singularity, which I think he thinks is going to happen twenty forty, something pretty, like that. Pretty fast, yeah. Um, yeah. So sciency, especially with the invention and in computer science, and he's um, working with Google now. That's his full time job, apparently, which is trying mm -hmm. to develop futuristic technologies and also to help out the disabled and stuff like that. But outside of the realm of like engineering, invention, and computer science, he's gotten a little wooey. A little bit. Yeah. He's written a couple books like The 10% Solution for a Healthy Life and uh, Live and Long Enough to... Sorry, Fantastic Voyage, Live Long Enough to Live Forever. He has a he has a follow-up to The 10% Solution called The 90% Precipitate. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> um, I love that. A couple of these books he wrote, has co-written with a alternative medicine, quote-unquote, doctor or person. Terry Grossman. Essentially what he does, Kurzweil, is that he consumes some 250 supplements a day, drinks alkaline water. We get back to this kind of, oh, it has to the be the alkaline water. water. Yeah. 
No, no, it's Kegel water. Um, <laughs> and drinking green tea and measuring out to have red wine throughout the week and all that kind of stuff in an order to reprogram his biochemistry so he can live long enough to reach the singularity. He's, let's see, born 48. So he's, what, about 65 now, plus or minus. So he needs to live another, you know, 30 or 40 years. Well, he was born in 46, 48. 48, so he has to be nearly 100. Yeah. So, 92, in fact. <laughs> though he says that all this kind of supplement stuff has meant that he's he's got the body of a younger man and all that. But there's a lot of alternative medicine wooiness that has gone into his health efforts, especially working with an alt-med person like this uh, Grossman guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at an image of Ray Kurzweil for a six-year-old guy. <laughs> he looks like a six-year-old guy. Yeah, it's... it's it, <laughs> I don't know how old that picture is, but I mean, he doesn't look decrepit Aren't you or glad anything. Glad that you don't have a Mac. Blue Windows, screen of death. Windows update today. It's oh. been messing with it. Sorry, I interrupted your train of thought again. So he's gotten into all this alternative medicine stuff to make sure that he can live long enough for the singularity. But there's also a lot of people who kind of debate his singularity kind of fervor. Where it's it's almost kind of a religious kind of tenant of his that this is going to happen that he can predict these kind of things. I mean, he he'll he'll lean on things like Moore's law that our processing is going up, and he's it, it used yeah, that. Yeah, which to... which was true back when it was true, but it's getting very difficult to to match Moore's law. So now it's not so much a law, more of a kind of a guideline wishful yeah. thinking kind of thing well one of the things he wrote in one of his books the age of spiritual machines is the concept of the law of accelerating returns mm. the idea that basically all this kind of um, computing but also just rate of evolution and variety of technology and biology and what we're learning is exponentially increasing in some cases, that's true, but in other cases, it's not. And sometimes it's actually the opposite. The more you're trying to learn about a more and more complex system, the harder it is to get that additional 1% or 2%. Sure, but there's also the problem of false knowledge being thrown out there. So we mm -hmm. may be getting a lot more knowledge, but we're getting knowledge of some things that we'll be talking about later on in this podcast. <laughs> that's something we've been talking about in the last two years where – I'll just I'll fall back to, to Carl Sagan's book, Demon Hunted World. Where he, in the foreword, he talks about getting into a taxi cab and he's recognized and the cab driver is just throwing out all this stuff about pyramid power and aliens and all this. And Carl Sagan had to basically tell him everything he knows is wrong, <laughs> you know, because he's full of knowledge and he thinks he knows how the world works. But in fact, what he knows doesn't reflect what we actually know. Well, I, I think Kurzweil at least tries to stick to the sci science about what we actually do know about uh, machines and nanotechnology and what we've understood about the body and vitamin supplements. Uh, yeah, basically <laughs> I, the big picture about Kurzweil and why I brought him up besides the fact that, yeah, he was an inventor is also, he's one of those people who shows the danger of claiming knowledge outside your specialty. Hmm. Yeah. So he seems to think that you mean like us, we have no specialty. Good point. <laughs> well, okay. no, wait. You and I don't have a specialty. <laughs> uh, that's not quite true either. <laughs> I don't have a specialty. Glad to see my side eye worked there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. So, as you were saying, as I was saying, Mr. Generalist. <laughs> oh, we'll just call it. No, we, uh, I refuse to call him General. <laughs> I really don't know how to get back into this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> moving on. But basically, he's claiming knowledge about medicine. Some of his ideas about understanding the brains are, um, I can't remember what it was, but the idea that the brain is essentially a series of... Tubes? Pattern. <laughs> the brain is a series of pattern recognition heuristics, essentially. Hmm. That gets as you go up through the levels of the neocortex. There's more and more complexity, which is why we're more complex than other great apes, which are more com complex than, say, dogs, hmm. 
who don't have quite as much neocortex as we do, that sort of thing, that doesn't quite fully understand biology and people like the people in our community, like Novella and especially PZ Myers, disagree with them fairly vocally about sure. his understanding of biology and neuroscience. And they understand biology and neuroscience a heck of a lot more than we do, but also probably more than Kurzweil does. Sure. So they can call him out on it and say, well, I mean, there's some things like apparently Kurzweil thinks that because we understand the DNA of humans now that we've done the genome project, that means that we'll understand how brains are built better. And that was part of a back and forth between PZ Myers and Kurzweil about not yeah, really we'll, understanding the yeah. structure of the brain through DNA and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The whole idea that DNA is a blueprint. Yeah. As opposed to a series of steps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's more like, more like an, an Ikea kind of well, chart. It's, it's the DNA is <laughs> the blueprint on how a brain will grow and react, but also the final brain depends a lot on the outside world and how it interacts with the brain. So even in utero, the brain has some interactions like hear sounds outside, sees lights and whatever, or chemicals the mother takes in will affect how the brain develops and affect how the brain works. Sure. And other people have different experiences with their brain. Yeah. Once you come out, you, you know, right. there's well, there's all people, that kind of fun yeah, stuff. There's people with schizophrenia, there's autism, there's a whole bunch of, there's a spectrum of ways the brain can work and how uh, we respond to how we perceive the world. But also whether or not you're exposed to stimulating toys as a child, whether you're read to as a child, all that affects brain development. No, because I do believe that the guys who did Freakonomics said that it really wasn't a matter of reading to the child that pushed kids into reading. What they found was if kids saw parents reading and there were a lot of books in the house, that encouraged them to read on their own. If I'm remembering correctly, and That's our true, listeners, because, I'm sure, can correct me on that one. Well, so. I mean, it, it makes sense because if if the only thing you have in the house is you know the hungry hungry caterpillar, you can only read that so many times before you you realize right. what the plot is. But if you have an entire library, and my my dad had yeah, I'll I'll say a small ish library, but we would go to the the library, <laughs> you know, and it was I was always an exciting time because yeah. we'd be able to get books and stuff like that. Right. So, and you, but you, but the thing is, he brought us to the library and we realized that, oh my God, look at all these books. <laughs> look at all this, <laughs> this things, places we can go. Yeah. So that's the way I looked at it. It was cool. What I guess I'm trying to get back is that there's no right path or wrong path to building the better brain. There is environment, there is biological, and there is stuff in between that affects it as well. It's both nature and nurture. Yeah. Right, In other words, Kurtzwell doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Not so much, but all... Not, he, in, not in that portion. Yeah. He's very good at electronics, though. Yeah, and, and, and developing the computer science things. But he seems to use almost cold reading-esque techniques for predicting the future. I think he postulated that we'd be using a lot more speech recognition nowadays than we actually are. And I think it's because he assumed that the progress of speech recognition was going to be linear or exponential where kind of a Moore's law kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. The, but there's apparently with speech recognition, there's a problem of the, the computer being able to understand context and nuance and sarcasm or anything like that. Sure. And just basically understanding, understanding dialects. Right. So that Very he difficult. didn't quite understand all that kind of technology and all the implications. So he is making a lot of guesses. Yeah, well, he he made he made some large assumptions. Yeah, and they just haven't quite come to pass. And a, and a lot of that is connected with his kind of fervent belief of we will get to the singularity, and I will be able to. If I die before then, I'll be able to freeze my brain and be resurrected. Or there, apparently, there's some things where he believes that by taking the DNA of his father, they can stick with me for a second. Essentially recreate that body, clone the father's body, but then recreate his father's brain based on Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil's memory of his father. And uh, yeah, the look I, on your face. Yeah, see, uh, for, for the, for the uh, listeners at home, uh, my eyes just got really wide uh, as in uh, what the hell is he possibly thinking? And there was the quizzical Spock mm. eyebrow going. Yeah. Oh. 
Um, no, I had more of a what the fuck is he smoking? Yeah, exactly. So uh, <laughs> once you go out to that level of his belief in the singularity and how we will achieve it and when and all that and what will be possible, like I said, it c- comes close to being a religion for him and maybe he doesn't quite see things entirely clearly, but an interesting inventor type dude. Yeah. Who is still alive. Yay! And <laughs> has lived a long and fulfilling life so far. So far. And maybe he might be right. He might. There might We might eventually pass that Turing test and be able to develop... I, I'm not holding my Computerized brains and nanotechnology and merge with the tech and technology to be kind of Borg-like, but with emotions and... Who knows? But happy birthday, Ray Kurzweil. Yeah. I just wish Kurzweil would use his brain a little bit more. Yeah, he's using his brain, but maybe his cranial capacity isn't as large as, say, the Paracas elongated skull people guys. The, the peroxide skulls? Yes. But they didn't have peroxide hair. They had reddish brown hair. And skin. Could be. Could be. <laughs> anyway, what we're talking about is an Incan Peruvian ancient culture that had elongated skulls or used elongating skull technology and there's a certain guy named i'm gonna call him brian forrester that sounds right is one of those people who spells brian with an e yeah b-r-i-e-n and Forster. a couple extra E's in the forrester kind of well thing. it's sort of a german yeah. you could have an umlaut over the o Sounds German. But yeah, he he's apparently trying to analyze samples of these elongated Incan skulls that were found in 1928 by Julio Tello. Yep. And um, apparently he's been amazed. Well, what, what happened was they have about 300 of these skulls. And he took samples of three of them and sent them off. To a geneticist. To points unknown. An unnamed geneticist about two, two, two years, years ago. And so why we are talking about it is because he got the results back just a couple of days ago. Preliminary results. Sorry. Yes. On because it was one skull that he got the results One skull, back. one test. Right. <laughs> so Donna, uh, this is your domain. Okay, so the results that he got back was the mitochondrial DNA, and I'll just do a quick review. The mitochondria is in every cell. It is the energy portion of the cell. It has its own DNA passed through the mother's line, and it is a slow-changing DNA. literally takes thousands of years to change. Not like nuclear DNA, like you see on CSI, this... Nuclear. Nuclear. Because yeah. <laughs> where you have mommy and daddy cells that split the genes in half and then recombine, right. the mom's egg cell just passes the mitochondria and you don't get any mitochondria from your dad. Correct. So it, literally it will take thousands of years for this to mutate. Because it's so, all basically accidental mutations, copying yes. mutations, not sexy mutations. Right. Yep. Or, or viruses. That Maybe in, that inject yeah. their own um, right. less DNA. likely to be viruses from. Uh... So this is this is what he had to say about the mitochondrial DNA. It had mtDNA with mutations unknown in any human, primate, or animal so far. Shock. But a few fragments I was able to separate from the sample indicate that if these mutations will hold, we are dealing with a new human-like creature, very distant from Homo sapiens, Neanderthals, and Denisovians. Basically saying, it's not human at all! Right. Now, this is a, a two to 3,000-year-old skull, allegedly. I think they're pretty sure about how old it is. The, the culture was around 1200 BCE. Yeah. Uh, up through about 100 BC. No, right. so 180. It's not people are wondering if it's faked or not. It's right. just, we it, have these old skulls. Right. As Mr. Forster does say... Putting these this DNA sample together is sort of like taking a crystal cup. It's all nice and put together, but because it's so old, it's kind of like taking that and shattering it on the ground and then putting it together. 
back again. That that was his yeah. his analogy. That was his analogy. I well, don't really mo- most find of our it. DNA testing. I think is it's not like we string out the DNA and read ATGC as it goes along. There is a lot of chemical processes. There, of there kind are, of but mixing yeah. it up. But this is he's basically describing the Jurassic Park version of DNA. <laughs> yeah, where... that really is. Thank you. That is a fabulous way to describe it. You know, suddenly he's pulled the blood of a paracas out of the soul of a crystal ball or something. (laughs) So these are skulls. He took samples from three skulls and sent them to, as you said, parts unknown. But there were multiple samples from the skulls. There was hair, teeth, skull, skin, various different samples from three skulls. But we only got one one okay. thing back. So One far. thing back in two years. Right. Honestly, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna cut to the quick here. He went in with a preconceived notion of how he saw this and he's he's wording his responses to fit that preconceived notion. Because he starts out with talking about the cranial capacity. Oh, it's up to twenty five percent larger and sixty percent heavier than conventional human skulls okay everybody go out and read the book the mismeasure of man right now it's a stephen j gold book and he talks about how skulls are on a spectrum and how the measuring techniques have been known in in our recent past to how shall we say been used to denigrate people of certain colors mm-hmm. saying that they're dumber or more monkey-like and da-da-da-da-da. So, so what, what we're finding is what he's saying is these couple hundred skulls, they average maybe about 25% larger than the human average, which is very averaged down through having people with very small skulls and having very big skulls, yeah. which doesn't always mean anything about intelligence, but, but there's that, a that, wide right. variety. But the implication is... is that, that one, they're aliens because he wants to believe that, but two, that the larger brain gives them more ability to right. think. Well, some of it just doesn't go into that, just that because they are larger, they are non Right, they but are he doesn't non-human. go into that, but boy, do a lot of people in, in the chats. He, uh, he doesn't mention that. whether or not this 25% bigger or 60% heavier is within the error margin of that bell curve of human skulls. Right. No, right. But, but the other thing about the skull that he thinks is phenomenal is it has only a single parietal, parietal plate. plate. What does that mean? Okay. Because I, I, don't, I don't get that. Human skull, for the most part, can be divided in half. It's bifurcated. Down, yeah, right. bifurcated. Ha! You have you have frontals, <laughs> which is where your forehead is. Then you have parietal bones, but which wait, are wait, 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 above wait, your ears. Wait, wait, what do we call that? The uh, the go curse. Splank now cranium. Yeah, splank now <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you have frontals in the front. You have parietals over the ears. And then you have the occipital, which is the back. The back. Okay. So I'm not quite sure how he's saying that there is only one parietal bone because it's kind of right there in the middle. Right. So the, does a normal human do, do they do they have like a, a there gap is kind in of between? a line down the middle? Yeah. Okay. That so it fills he... in when basically you're born with an incomplete skull, so it can smush. Right. Through the basically Plato fun factory right. of life. There's there's the suture line that runs okay. right across it. So he's just saying that everyone that has like a metal that is it's it's a single one rather than a fused one. Here. Is that what he's saying? And it may be that okay. maybe he's confusing a fused parietal to just a sing- having two separate one. ones cuz the normal skull doesn't look like these elongated skulls. Right. right. Oh, yeah. In addition, that suture line, the older you get, it fades. Okay. So you can't see oh. the, the difference much anymore, but because we know how kids develop, we know it should be there. Right. But if you're old enough, you can't see it. Right. Because like when you talk about a baby and it's the soft spot on its head, that's where the frontals and the parietal bones are fusing. And it creates those suture lines. Ah, okay. 
So it's possible that... That he just didn't look very hard enough. That's my guess. Okay. But what I was going to say... You are correct, Donna. The, The whole controversy here is that the general accepted position is that these skulls were essentially deformed or reformed through techniques of using bindings and pieces of wood to essentially consistently squish the skull from... I think they said from about six months till like five or ten years old right. to to change the shape of the forming skull. And that his view is that, no, it's these are different species or whatever, but that it could be possible that that process of smooshing the skull with the boards and deforming things with wrappings and all that kind of stuff, kind of like foot binding and that sort of thing, it could be that that more blatantly erases the signs of those fusion areas of the skull that may be in different areas or look different so he's missing the signs i will give you that i that is a very possible thing because skull malform purpose skull malformation is really fucking popular i mean you look at like nefertiti right she's got pretty much the same thing that he's describing I assumed that all those, like, Egyptian kings or whatever and queens or whatever had essentially fancy hats. But apparently this was done throughout the world, including Right, and one of the things that he said in his thing, and I can't remember, he talks about it, you know, it was only the ruling class of this, the Paracas, that did it. Well, that's the same thing in the Egyptians, and that's the same thing amongst the Aztecs, and it's the same thing amongst a whole bunch of different other peoples. Although it is interesting that... A South American culture and an Egyptian culture would have a similar. Lots uh, of different cultures did it. Aboriginal Australians. It's all over the place. That's the point. It's kind of weird that they all came around this idea to scratch this. It all popped up in many different places. Yeah, it's kind of a convergent evolution of people doing things to the body. I'm not certain that it's all at the same time. Yeah. Well, it's the kind of thing like ear modification, either through earrings or yeah. the the plugs that people put in their, their ears now or, 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 sure, or nose rings or whatever. Lots of people have thought to adorn their bodies that way. but And foot binding and head binding and all this kind of stuff. The neck stretching. The neck stretching, exactly. The, the kind of permanent body modification is something that a lot of cultures have done. It's just there's only so many body parts you can do that with. <laughs> that still allow you to remain functional. Right. Yeah. That's Some would say fun. things like foot binding don't allow you to be functional, but that's a whole different argument. Well, you can't really play soccer well. No, not so much. But he does a lot of this, well, yeah, but maybe. Right. There's There was an interview posted on IntelliHub, and he does a lot of, well, yeah, maybe. Throughout yeah. the interview, it's always, well, we see this in Russia, but it's not really Russia, it's Georgia. Well, and we the, see it in Mexico, but it's really the Olmec is not really Mexico. Right. Well, and I'm just like. But it was it was a the same lady that uh, from AncientOrigins.com, uh, April Holloway, and she is totally into these wanting to be these aliens. Yeah. Whereas he sort of did a good job of trying to appear as scientific, scientific right. while still leading because she asked leading questions right and his responses were a little bit well probably not but as you said but one thing i, I thought was rather interesting is the reason why they haven't disclosed who the genesis was but also the reason uh, let me just give you the quote about who was doing the genetics work he says, uh, well, going through any government or private foundation would probably result in the results either being deleted or altered or yes. being kept for purposes other than my intent. And my intent is to find the truth. Now, what's weird about that is so he's got this government conspiracy kind of thing going on. It's like the stuff that they don't want yeah. you to know. But what's weird is in the next answer he gives. He's talking about the Genesis specifically, and he says, quote, He does a lot of contract work for the U.S. government, so clearly the U.S. government wouldn't choose someone who is flaky or sensationalist. He doesn't trust the government, but he used uh, someone, someone who that, works that for the, the government, government trusts. Trust. No. 
So right. it's, it's re- this weird dichotomy is like, oh, well, the government is horrible, but look, the government hired this person, and the government really knows who the smart people are. <laughs> it's, it's, what, it's basically like the Ken Ham, Eric Hoven kind of thing, where they say one thing, and then they completely refute it then with the next thing, or Glenn Beck, or anybody right. else. Lots of contradictions. There was, just, there was yeah. a lot of, of contradictions. There was a lot of... Here I'm gonna I'm gonna tie it to to this because he ties to the star child, which is a deformed uh, child. Yeah, so. that's it is. He ties it in the interview. He also ties it to the Nazca, which have these brilliant lines that they created on land that you can see, you know, like from a plane. And, you know, everybody's first answer was, well, if they did that, you know, a thousand years ago, obviously it was some signal to the our alien overlords. Mm-hmm. You know, it's where everybody goes. He doesn't come out and go, yes, I believe that it's aliens. But here, you know, oh, look, we got this guy who worked on the Star Child. And, and look, it's so close to the Nazca lines. And oh, look. Oh, it's... look, I wrote some books. The, yeah. the, the furthest he's <laughs> really willing to claim is he thinks this is, I, I forget the exact quote, but... I think this is this is probably outside the known evolutionary tree. Yeah. So that it's it's a completely separate line of evolution, like silicon based life versus carbon based life. That much of a separate family tree is seems like what he's claiming. So I, I don't know that he's going quite that far. It's it's almost like it's a separate species, like a speciation who didn't have the influx of the mitochondrial changes that. Uh, he says humans, but I was going to say Homo sapiens and Neanderthal had. But he talks about the known evolutionary tree. Right. That's everything. Right. From, like, bacteria up to humans. Right. And so he says, like, these are separate, and they completely throw that out of whack. But then he says, oh, yes, I think that they probably bred with uh, regular humans. Right. But Which in some places, make any he, sense. No, in some places he says he doesn't think they could, could mate because they're so different. Oh, does because uh, uh, I I read one where he says, "Well, I'm I'm sure that they they it's in the interview, right?" Well, the thing about it is, anyway. is he also talks about he does throw in a lot of sciencey sounding terminology, like I spoke to a geneticist about it, and he said that he'd be willing to address the public about this, but not after one test because it's too easy for skeptics or whoever to rip his information apart. And so as a scientist, he wants to make sure that he's done several replications, and then when he is comfortable, he will come forward himself and discuss what he believes that we are looking at. Sounds very sciencey. I want to replicate it. I want to be able to reproduce it. But then, <laughs> the next paragraph, he talks about fundraising to you know do these more tests and everything else. He goes, I will get nothing from it. Just as I have received nothing financially from the previous fundraisings that we did and the other samples have recently gone to a geneticist from a third party and I'm still waiting for some kind of result from Dr. Melba Ketchum. Now for those of you <laughs> this playing along in the down home a game, whole other path. Dr. Melba Ketchum is the woman who believes she has found Sasquatch DNA from a fucking muffin. <laughs> okay. It was we, the the claim that Bigfoot is a crossbreed between some unknown primate ape species and a human woman. Yes. It's that person. Yes. And now he ends up going on about how she wants to to test the genome of the Paracas, but it's going to be cost $100,000 and apparently he had trouble raising $7,000 cuz right. he's all the- about I want to make sure that people know their money didn't go to a bad cause. It, it looks like the tests he's done so far that have led to this weird kind of mitochondrial test that he's press releasing about. That's another suspicious thing. Basically, were just initial little tests. But to, like you said, do the full genome of these samples would require a lot more money than he's been able to raise. Yeah. But going back to a female Bigfoot geneticist person. Melba Ketchum. Melba. Melba Toast Ketchum. Sorry. That's where I go with her. Doubtful News reported that she isn't, in fact, the geneticist that is did this first sample. First of all, because it's a he, according to uh, Forrester. So I, I, I got really confused on whether or not Melba was part of the team at all. Because in some posts, 
she was said that yes, she's doing the genetic testing, but they've been told that no, she's not part of the testing. Like it, some of them have said that she's received some samples, but she right. didn't receive all the samples. Right. So, okay, so there's a lot these of tests are from another person, and yeah, it's kind of weird. The Delphal News yeah. actually has an update, and it says, however, there is still the admission that she is involved with different ah, samples. Okay. The quote is, the results are not from Melba Kepsham. She has other samples. Ah, okay. Her involvement at all, even if it's just as an advisor, casts doubt on this entire process. Well, it's one of those yeah. big red flags. Well, like I said, like releasing all of this in a interview or a press conference rather than peer review. Right. But speaking of peer review, Mr. Forrester did say that the geneticist that gave this initial result, that the geneticist is afraid that the skeptics will tear his work apart, but... That's exactly what science is about, is mm -hmm. you show your work, and then other people can come in and say, oh, well, we think you probably did this wrong. But according to the Ancient Origins post, all of the samples were taken, and there's photos and video of them doing that. Well, okay, where are they? The, the one thing is there's no links to anything Mm -hmm. There's no links to the data. There's no links to the results. There's no links to the, even the to anything about this. It's a lot of claim of a chain of evidence, but no, no documentation, but not proving that outside of their own little circle, and that's yeah. kind of suspicious, right? And very much so. Delphi News makes this great saying: "Science by press release and leakage is bad form and is almost always a bust because it's the conclusion from the researchers who are biased in this role." This is why peer review exists, to point out the problems that were missed by investigators who are too close to the subject to be objective. Right there, that nails it on the head. Goes on to say, one problem we have with these types of news stories are those who speculate to fantastic conclusions. Aliens, angels, the paranormal. Nothing this is why we try to note where these stories are going in the mainstream and headed off with a note of extreme caution. Not that it helps. I don't think those folks off on the French path are reading the site. <laughs> Delphal News did a, a wonderful, wonderful takedown of it. There's way too much. And until I see the actual paper and you the won't. data, I'm willing to guess that he is just cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and is using it to raise money. Raise huh. money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he's asking donors for money to do these tests, but also... I think a lot of this is purely about he has a book out there. I think it's called like the Enigma of Cranial Deformation or something like that. And he runs a website called Hidden Inca Tours, which is all about this kind of stuff. So he I think a lot of this is just trying to say, hey, buy my stuff, come on my tours or whatever it is. I think it's Inca Tours, not Inca Tours. And so the way he says it, like Inca Tours, I'm like from in, like, in cahoots. I'm from in Jersey. Couture. Deal with it. In couture. <laughs> okay. Like suddenly they're in high fashion. Oh, maybe he made that website just for that. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe. Mexican high fashion. Yeah. But you know something that was also apparently high fashion? Oh, really? I was about to say it was shrouded in mystery. <laughs> <laughs> shrouds. Death shrouds. shrouds. Death shrouds. <laughs> The Shroud of Turin is back in the news again. Yay! They don't have a shroud of evidence. Ha! 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 Yep. Okay. Yep, I went there. No, I was just wondering if you were done. Um, Italian. Ouch! <laughs> Ooh! Just for that? Yeah. Would you like some aloe for that burn? No. <laughs> So Italian science Alberto Caparini, uh, I can't read it very well, it's kind of small right now, I'm just going to call him Alberto from now on, is a scientist from the Politecnico di, uh, di Torino who has hypothesized the reason why the carbon dating tests on the Shroud of Turin keep coming back saying that the Shroud was created somewhere between the late 1200s through the 1300s, probably somewhere in that 14th century, somewhere. And what would that reason be? Carbon-14 dating is essentially you've got a, a slightly heavier version of carbon that has an extra neutron or two, and as a living being dies, 
that ratio of heavier carbon to normal carbon starts to decay, and that's how you can tell some, how old something is, by that half-life of that radioactive version. So tests have been done on the Shroud of Turin before, and given that kind of 14th century date. Now, some other people have claimed, well, oh, you tested the wrong portion. You tested a scrap that was sewn in in the Middle Ages to repair it, or because it was around fires, that means it changed. You know, fires changes things kind of carbony, <laughs> so that means it changed its carbon dating kind of thing. Well, Alberto has a new hypothesis. I think I got another cough coming up. I know, you've been This is going to be a big one, so back up from the mic. Yes. <laughs> so what Alberto has done is he's hypothesized that when you crush, basically, brittle rock specimens together, you get piezonuclear fission reactions that emit neutrons. So essentially, crushing rocks together really, really hard emits neutrons. And usually that's only something you get with fission or fusion in, like, nuclear reactors, right. where that kind of pressure and energy causes neutrons to basically fly out of whatever you're fissioning or fusioning. Right. So apparently he thinks, or he and his team think, that earthquakes, which is crushing of rock... If you have a powerful enough earthquake that releases a whole bunch of these neutrons, which would mean that a whole bunch of a, a powerful enough earthquake at the right time would release a whole bunch of neutrons that would interact to and essentially bond with carbon atoms to make those carbon-14 heavy carbon versions, causing the dating of something like the Shroud of Turin to be screwed up off by 12 to 1400 years apparently so it made it seem younger than it actually is exactly but in addition to changing the carbon 14 dating of this cloth they also suggest that this flood of neutrinos is what actually created the essentially photo negative image on the cloth that is the shroud of turret See, the great thing about this is it's probably impossible to actually test. <laughs> well, probably not, but... <laughs> so they would just get a, uh, somebody shrouded and then... Uh, Take a body, shroud it, and put it on top of a nuclear reactor. Oh, I guess you could do yeah. that. So that is the hypothesis, which seems to be this big catch-all, solves-everything, tied-with-a-neat-little-bow hypothesis of what they think probably could have happened. Yeah, it, it's weird how the neutrinos affected the entire cloth, considering neutrinos are actually quite small. Right. Well, there was just such a mass explosion of neutrinos uh -huh. from this earthquake that it it affected everything kind yeah. of all at once, it is, except for anything else in the archaeological record. Right. Right. Nothing else. Zip. Zilch. And, and, nada. And, and the and focus the... was affected. <laughs> That's a technical term, <laughs> just so you know. So you've got all these other archaeological things around that time that their dating is not messed up. Because often sometimes, because of certain cosmic events, scientists will take into account that there might be different carbon-14 ratios right. starting at different times. And there are things that can affect it, like being closer to seawater. But the thing is, is that the people who actually do the carbon-14 testing... They have charts and graphs <laughs> and, like, books of how it all fits together. Like, millions upon millions of pages that they go through and they're all like, okay, if it's this ratio, it's this many years old, but if you're this close to the sea, we can judge it this way. And Where it was found. Right, exactly. Yeah. This, for organic material, carbon-14 dating <laughs> testing, as long as you're looking at, like, 10,000 years and below. Yeah, because Gary and I it's, were guessing about that last week. <laughs> you're you're pretty fucking safe. Yeah. Even at 25,000 years, you're still... I mean, you're probably going to be in a ballpark of 1,000 years. So, so you're still pretty fucking safe at that point. So you've got a lot of great books and charts and graphs registering everything you need to know about where it's found and how that can take into account. But in the article I found on, I think it was LiveScience.com, they mentioned that 
no one has ever had to take this into account in a heavy earthquake area like, say, Japan. Right. Exactly. So, one, it's only this one archaeological artifact in this one place that all of a sudden all the neutrinos rushed to this one piece of cloth. It's because it was Jeebus. And affected it somehow to imprint this image of some dead guy's face and body on it who happened to also be crucified. In addition, okay, so if we have an earthquake of that magnitude, which would have to be like, what, a 75 on the Richter scale to to match a nuclear explosion here. What they're claiming here is an 8 on the Richter scale. Okay. Roughly around the time of Jesus or... Well, well, there's it, it, no gonna, known gonna, fucking recording. Hold on, I'm going to in get into that in a Bible. second. Yeah, I kind of think they'd mention that because in the Bible it does say that the Earth shakes, right? But it happens when he dies, not when he's shrouded. Okay, here we go. Here's where I'm going to try to blow your mind. Ooh, blow my my hippie noodle. <laughs> All Ooh, of this is based on some research that was, I think, published in 2012 about. The International Geology Review. Can we trust this? Because that is when the Earth ended. (laughs) It was in May. Um, And a geologist, Jefferson Williams and team, essentially went out to the Dead Sea area and took some cores and figured out that there was a fairly widespread earthquake in 31 BC, so before Christ. Maybe maybe Christ was living backwards. But then there was, was an, crucified and then but, was, was born. born. <laughs> but there was another one somewhere between the years 26 and 36 AD. Oh. So they found okay. a couple of earthquakes around the right time. They, they didn't really say how heavy they were, but they were significant enough that it affected the sedimentation around the Dead Sea area. Okay, but that, a small but still, earthquake can do that. Okay, here, here's, yeah, exactly. A small earthquake. Like okay, an, an, yeah. eight, an eight is going to uh, That's move That's major. Some. Okay, the Loma Prieta earthquake was a 7.2. The one in Los Angeles in 94 was like a 7.3, 7.4? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I, I've been through a close to eight-point earthquake in Japan. 93 seconds. You have enough time to go, oh, shit. Yes. Apparently, this was a powerful enough earthquake to affect the sedimentation and and all that to be found in the geological record, but not powerful enough to be recorded, recorded anywhere outside this the possibility of being mentioned in the biblical record. Well, maybe. Well, yeah, but if hardly, you trust it as a record, hardly anybody else mentioned the dead getting up and walking around either. So, yes. can we trust the historians? <laughs> so, what we have here is were they there? Oh, wait, they were there. This geology review, Jefferson Williams, and all that. They compared these core samples and then said, "Okay, when was what was his name? Pontius Pilate, the the guy in Judea, and all that kind of thumb." Okay, it's between about twenty six to thirty six. Okay, that makes sense and all that. So their hypothesis was that Jesus was crucified on April 3rd in the year 33. Right. So this is the research that the Shroud of Turin people are saying proves that there was an earthquake around the time. The problem being, like Gary said, is Matthew 2751 says that there was an earthquake when Jesus died. Right. And then in Can't Matthew 28... <laughs> <laughs> in Matthew 28, 2, apparently there were, the earth shook when an angel rolled the stone away oh. and revealed the stone, the the, the, the empty tomb or whatever. <laughs> so, ta-da! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and but, now for my next trick. But apparently none of that happened at all in Mark, Luke, or John. There's okay. no earthquakes when the death happened or when the... Tomb was found. You mean, you mean in the earlier found, ones? <laughs> yeah, the tomb was found open, and apparently there was no earthquake, no big celestial angel sign or anything like that. There was no renting of the veils of the temple or anything like that. It was just open. There was no earthquakes mentioned at all. It's one of these versions that they say this is an earthquake. So this may have just been metaphor. So you can't prove that there was an earthquake even at that time. That it actually happened around the time Jesus would have died, that three-day period or whatever, something like that. Because his, his body went up to heaven after three days, didn't it? 
it was lifted bodily into heaven and yeah, yeah, he was gone. So there's no proof that there was the earthquake in the first place to assume that an earthquake is what caused the shroud of Turin thing in the second place. But if there was an earthquake, it's possible that the body fell off the uh, whatever it was lying on and they just didn't see it. <laughs> so maybe there is credence. <laughs> but then you, you have to go back to Occam's razor. Or even go back to the fact that we don't even know if there was a Jesus. Well, yeah, but okay, but it's been shown that you can recreate something like this yeah. using the chemicals and techniques that they had during the day. So Occam's razor says this is probably a fake. Yeah. Uh, sorry, it's just a not not during the day of uh, thirty three BC, but in the twelfth to fifteenth, fourteenth century. Fourteenth century. Uh, so if you can if you can do it, chances are. It may have been done, and we've lost the technology, which, interestingly enough, I, I want to do a, a plug for something I have nothing to do with. Teller from Penn & Teller has a documentary out called Tim's Vermeer, where he rediscovers the techniques that probably the painter Vermeer used to do his giant landscapes. Huh. And it's really fascinating. You know, So we've lost technology. We've lost ideas. But as we talked about last time, it doesn't mean – People back then were stupid, right? You know, and, but there there was technology, and there's stuff that we don't even know that they had, like the uh, oh, there was a there was a compass or a device that was found in the Mediterranean that mm -hmm. was extremely complicated and very technologically advanced for the time that they think that it was around. Uh, you had gears and probably right. mapped stars, you know, for for navigation. You know, so there's stuff out there. People weren't stupid. Or even stuff that's a lot <laughs> well, more well-known, like Greek fire. Greek fire? I think it's Greek fire is the term for it, but it was essentially kind of like a napalm weapon of war that nobody knows how they made it or what it was. Right. All they know is a devastating weapon that was talked about as Greek fire or whatever the real name is. Right. Okay. I assumed that Donna was going to correct me on that one, but apparently that's not where her expertise lies. <laughs> So, yeah, it's probable that the Shroud of Turin is a medieval forgery. forgery. I mean, there are 14 uh, Jessai foreskins. Yeah, there's there's the bones of the saints <laughs> and all these, all those kind of relics that were floating around that day. And even to this day, the Catholic Church does not have an official position right. on the Shroud of Turin. Most of the time they shroud it <laughs> in language of, well, it inspires the story of someone who would have been crucified to make you think of Jesus and all that. They don't even claim that, oh, well, it might be true. It's it's just, oh, it's inspirational that someone right. would go through that suffering or whatever. Jesus might have been an alien to have an elongated <laughs> skull. <laughs> but I, I, I think obviously the thing that ties both these stories together, the elongated, elongated? Elongated. The elongated um, pancreas skulls or whatever the hell they are. <laughs> And, Panacea, no. And, <laughs> and the Shroud of Turin is exactly what you said, Occam's Razor. The simplest idea is this was people smushing their their foreheads to produce the Shroud of Turin or using medieval weaving and painting techniques to create elongated skulls. It's and probably how money. it happened. Yeah. Sorry. But we shall flip uh, those. Yeah. <laughs> we shall not know that. Uh, we, we shall not know until someone invents a time machine. Or not. I thought you were waiting, giving a pause there for someone with a time machine to show up. I was. Okay. I always do that. It turns out uh, time machine to the past really isn't particularly possible at the energies we can create these days. No, not so much. There <laughs> isn't like in physics that time doesn't necessarily have to flow in one way based on right. the math, but... It just happens to, so we're just going to stick with that. Yeah, this is this is the reality we perceive. <laughs> I'm scared of the reality you perceive, Gary. As well you should. So, what did we learn this week? We learned that while Kurzweil made some cool keyboards and technology, he can't quite get his singularity on. We learned that... Paracas skulls don't currently have Bigfoot DNA, but they might shortly. And we learn that the Shroud of Turin may have been caused by an earth-shaking nocturnal neutron emission. 
Yes, I'm, that's right, ladies. <laughs> Gary's single. <laughs> you know, I think that last one may have been one of your best. What did we learn? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> still, still proud of the the Catholic Church going, becoming irrelevant. One hundred forty characters at the time. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so, uh, I think that about wraps it up for this week. Happy Darwin Day, peoples. Yes, uh, I hope you had a good celebration for the Darwinage. Yeah, um, it's too bad that... you evolved that... just a little bit. <laughs> it's too bad that um, that resolution started by, I think it was a representative from New Jersey this time. The Darwin Day resolution in Congress kind of failed. But uh, Imagine that! Yeah. When, probably, when you get like the probably didn't present it quite in the right way, the head of the science and technology person thinks that uh, evolution is the the talk of the devil or something <laughs> like that. And apparently, this representative from New Jersey included a lot of if you're denying evolution, you're also denying climate change and a lot of hot button kind of poke you in the eye liberal topics like that. So yeah, well, it probably, maybe another senator came up to him and. Uh, from New Jersey and said, yeah, that's a that's a beautiful resolution you got there. Uh, be a shame if uh, something happened to it, Mike. <laughs> that's a really bad New Jersey. That's really, really bad New Jersey. <laughs> Aren't you? I'm not offended by it. Okay, so you're offended when we call New Jerseyites Oompa Loompas and mention the Guidos and Guidettes. Because but... they're not from New Jersey, they're from New York. Are you sure? Because it's called Jersey Shore for a reason. Only one of the people on that cast is actually from New Jersey. Chrissy! <coughs> Chrissy. <coughs> Chrissy. Hmm? What? I don't think Chris Christie was on the Jersey Shore, but I never watched no, it. No, I wasn't talking about Jersey Shore. I was talking about corruption. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying Jersey doesn't have corruption. That's Jersey good. has plenty of corruptions. Just look it's at... Like, it's uh, like when you're talking about corruption, that's kind of the place where you... Yeah, just look at Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Uh, really? Yeah. Okay. Obvious. Take a look at me. Oh, wait. That's uh, Genesis. That's uh, <laughs> Paul, Paul Col uh, Phil Collins. Phil Collins. Phil Collins. <laughs> yes. Although, Easy to confuse. I'd love, I'd, love, I'd love to hear Bruce Springsteen do that song. <laughs> Take a look at me now. Shoo, shoo, shoo. Wow. <laughs> I'm an idiot. Okay. Jersey is not perfect. Has no. plenty of corruption and bad people and good people and because yeah, we don't have that in Texas. <laughs> not at all. Exactly. Well, you know, did you see in the news Wendy came out in Wendy favor Davis? Wendy Davis came out in favor of open carry. You know there is some Republicans now that are like curses. Curse. <laughs> I can't agree with her, but I Yep. <laughs> We're going to just see like mitosis where they just like split. Yeah. Well, what they're going to, what they'll probably say is, oh, she's just doing that for political purposes. Yeah, they, yeah, they've for already assumed, uh, uh, they've already accused her of pandering and oh, that of kind of stuff. She should show up uh, to the Capitol with, like, with, <laughs> with the carrying, gun, yeah. Carrying a rifle. Well, you know, you can get into the Capitol with your concealed carry, just sure. not a tampon. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or maybe you should have done what that the guy who was promoting the new gun store location just show up in a banana costume with an AK forty seven. Yep. Yeah. But no banana clip. Count <laughs> <laughs> that down. And what's so hilarious now is that he he got arrested or the banana up, guy. Yeah, the banana guy got written up, not arrested, but written up for um, uh, basically street walking. Uh, yeah, jaywalking. No, 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 no. there's there's a law solicitation? in so, solicitation, right? Yeah. But there's a there's a roadside a solicitation. You can solicit like in front of a store, but like if you are walking pizza, pizza. up and down the road, hmm. that is actually a finable offense. So you can basically twirl one of those signs for tax returns and, and in front of the tax place. In front of the tax place, but if you walk up and down, like the people. In saying that they're a veteran at the stoplight and they walk up and down right. the road, that's the illegal part. Okay. Yep. Precisely. Anyway, all right. So... Lots of wonderful local news for you folks. <laughs> exactly. Especially Richard over in England. You care a lot about this. That's right. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk with you. Talk with you. Well, uh, next week. Yeah. Sounds good. Bye. Bye.
Thank you. <laughs> bye bye. Baby mermaid birth confirmed. 150 episodes in, and we can't figure out how to end the show still. Yeah, it's kind of become a, a joke to me about trying to end it. <laughs> so you saying, Gary, that you're having trouble finishing? I was going to say, that's Aspect what she said. <laughs> I have nothing to do with this. <laughs> the Skeptic Wire podcast theme music is by Oscar Lawn with guest mandolin by Greg Perrine. If you've enjoyed listening to The Skeptic Wire, leave a review on iTunes or leave us a voice message via the Podposted app for iPhone. Friend us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at The Skeptic Wire. Follow our blog at skepticwire.blogspot.com or send us an email, skepticwire at gmail.com. You've been listening to The Skeptic Wire. Alberto has a new hypothesis. I think I got another cough coming up. I know. You've been This is going to be a big one. So back up from the mic. Yes. <laughs> Alberto's hypothesis is that... He's been able to test what was it called? Uh, piezonuclear fission reactions. Piezo. Piezo? Sorry. Well, sorry. There's two ways to say it. You can say piezo or piezo. Okay. He's been able to look at. He's looked at piezo fission. Oh, you went that one, did you? <laughs> it's. It- there's no good way to... I've heard it both ways, yeah. and I'm an electrical yeah. engineer. Yeah. <laughs> He's... So what Alberto has done is... Hi, folks. This is Greg with a couple corrections here at the end. So no, you don't have to send us emails on these few things at least. First of all, Gary did get it slightly incorrect on the Thomas Edison thing. He was born February 11th, not February 12th, the date of this recording. Second of all, in the discussion of the Shroud of Turin, we got a couple things wrong on the chemistry. First of all, when I said that carbon-14 was just regular carbon with one or two extra neutrons, it's actually two extra neutrons because the normal variety of carbon is carbon-12. There is a carbon-13, but no one talks about that one. It's kind of the black sheep of the family. Second of all, on the Shroud of Turin thing, a few times during the discussion, Gary and I both accidentally say neutrinos – we did actually mean neutrons. Anytime you hear us mention neutrino, we were talking about neutrons. Thank you very much, folks. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.